Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. Things looked pretty grim. Of the tug there was no sign. Where it was, I hadn't a clue. We could be flying over the top of it for all I knew. It wouldn't be the first time that had happened in cloud. A few feet in front of the glider, I could just make out the V of the tow rope where it parted to join to each wing of the horser. Every now and again, the cloud would thin out slightly and I would catch a glimpse of the shadowy, vague outline of the tug. Sometimes I could swear we were almost flying alongside it and I swore at the horser, where do you think you're going now, you bastard? I couldn't get rid of the thought that was going through my mind with nagging persistence that all the time we were in this cloud there was a chance of the tow rope snapping as easily as a piece of cotton thread. If that happened, there was only one direction we could travel. Downwards, down and down until we would eventually have to come to terms with the unfriendly Atlantic. I didn't fancy our chances if we had to ditch in this weather. At 4,000 feet, we were still in cloud and I was still struggling with the control column. Harry was now sitting in the seat next to me as Percy had gone back for a well-earned rest. 
Not that I could imagine him getting much rest while we were being tossed around as we were. I was beginning to tire with the terrific concentration and effort needed to fly this horse, when, at 5,200 feet, we broke through the cloud ceiling to a scene of dazzling brilliance. Never before had the sky seemed such a beautiful blue. Seen from above, the clouds which had been so menacing to our safety a few seconds ago now looked like pure white snow stretching in every direction as far as the naked eye could see. We were not yet out of trouble, however, as I still couldn't see the tug. When it finally emerged from the clouds after what seemed like several minutes, but was in fact only a few seconds, it was slightly ahead of us and a good 50 feet below. Now came the tricky job of manoeuvring the horse back into its correct flying position without breaking the tow rope, a job made considerably easier by the expert skill of Buster Briggs in the Halifax. Once we were back in our rightful position, I noticed that what had seemed such a hard job, keeping the starboard wing up, was now child's play after our nightmare antics climbing up through the clouds. I knew now that nothing short of a direct attack by JU-88s could stop us reaching Africa. At about the same time, although I didn't of course know it then, Major Cooper and his crew were going down in the drink, having broken their tow rope attempting to climb through the same clouds we were now looking down upon. I was very grateful to hand over to Harry when my half hour was up, as I was soaking wet with sweat. Percy took over my seat and I went back into the fuselage to change. It had been very cold at Portreath and I was wearing a vest, shirt, pullover and battle dress. After my exertions of the previous half hour, I was glad to strip down to the waist and have a brisk rub down. Considerably refreshed, I donned a tropical shirt and went to have a look at the starboard wing through one of the portholes in the fuselage. It was worse than I had expected. Not only was the wheel embedded in the main part of the wing, part of it was sticking in the flaps so we wouldn't be able to use them while landing. I could see the undercarriage parachute half in and half out of the wing and shuddered to think what would happen if it worked loose and opened while we were still on tow. The steel leg of the undercarriage was pointing straight downward and causing a considerable amount of drag on the starboard wing. The end of the leg was below the level of the fuselage and would obviously touch the ground first when we landed. However, we would have to worry about that when the time came. It was easy to guess what had happened. The undercarriage, fixed for jettisoning after takeoff, had only been attached by a thin wire. During our series of bumps on the runway, the wire had come adrift and the wheel had bounced, turned turtle and stuck in its present position. Having assessed the damage to the wing and deciding there was nothing we could do about it, I dismissed it from my mind, got out my trumpet and spent the remainder of my rest period blowing long notes in the high register. I thought this was great fun, playing my trumpet in the fuselage of a horse glider at 5,000 feet over the Bay of Biscay must surely be something that no one else had ever done or has done since. This was terrific. I could play to my heart's content as loudly as I liked, without such comments as Lofty, you can't practice in the wash house, or for Pete's sake, stick a mutant it, I'm trying to get some kip. After four or five hours flying, a gap appeared in the clouds, and just off the port wing, and over 5,000 feet below, I saw a city. It looked absolutely magnificent, and I can only assume it was Lisbon. Indeed, we were over the gap so quickly that I thought I had imagined it, but Percy had seen it too. Shortly after that, the clouds started to thin out and eventually disappeared altogether. From then on, it was just like a pleasure trip. The farther south we flew, the calmer the sea seemed to look and the bluer the sky. The sun got stronger and stronger and the perspex windows of the control cabin were too hot to touch. Soon we were flying stripped to the waist and wearing anti-glare glasses. Flying with the control column in its unnatural position had now become almost second nature. It was about this time that the Halifax rear gunner suggested I played him a tune on the trumpet and using my intercom as a microphone I readily obliged. From then on it developed into a sort of aerial request programme, with the Halifax crew supplying the requests. 
So passed a pleasant half hour, which ended only when Buster Briggs politely pointed out that he couldn't hear himself speak to his crew. We had been airborne for ten hours when I handed over to Harry and went back for a rest. Percy had just taken my seat when he called out, Coastline ahead! It was indeed, and I could see the long, low, brown line of the African coast getting nearer every second. My heart beat faster and faster, and I didn't envy Harry Flynn, who was going to have the job of landing on a strange airstrip with a handicap of the starboard wing and undercarriage. We crossed the coast, and I could see the long, straight coastal road stretching for miles. Less than 400 yards to our right, and alongside the coastal road, was Sally Airfield. Two or three miles beyond it was the gleaming white city of Rabat, capital of French Morocco. It had been a first-class job of navigation, but then we wouldn't have expected anything less from Buster Briggs' navigator. We did a couple of circuits to size up the airfield, decreasing height as we did so. And finally, Harry released at 600 feet on the downwind leg. I stood in the doorway of the control cabin, overlooking Harry's shoulder as he made his approach. He did a long, gentle sweeping turn and lined himself up beautifully with the runway. Coming in for the touchdown, I thought that if anything we were a shade too fast at 80 to 85 miles per hour, but then Harry was at the controls and better able to judge. He did, however, seem to be having a spot of trouble with the control column, and Percy asked, wouldn't he help, Harry? Not me, mate, said Harry. I can handle this cowson. It's a piece of cake. We touched down at 80, and things happened quickly after that. There was a tremendous tearing, screeching din as we belted down the iron mesh runway. Suddenly, the undercarriage parachute worked loose, and with a sharp crack it opened, pulled the horse around in a right-angled turn. The force of the chute opening jerked the wheel out of the wing, and it bounced back and hit the tailplane, with the parachute wrapping itself around the tail fin. At this stage, I was hurled bodily onto the fuselage floor. We came to an abrupt halt in some sandy scrub at the runway intersection, and the glider tipped slowly sideways with the starboard wing coming to rest on the sand. I picked myself up. Percy looked at Harry. I looked at Harry. We all looked at each other and I spoke. It's a piece of fin cake. We all burst out laughing as the tension was relieved. We had landed the first horser to fly all the way from England to Africa. Within minutes we were surrounded by a crowd of admiring American airmen whose attitude seemed to be, gee, you limey sure must be tough to land those gliders like that and walk away unhurt. We just couldn't convince them that this had not been a normal landing until a few minutes later another horser came in, made a beautiful landing and out stepped Galpin and co. We spent a few pleasant days at Sally patching up our horser and being very hospitably entertained by our American allies and then flew back to England to be immediately sent off on a short leave. Turkey Buzzard was now in full swing and several horses had been successfully ferried to Sally. Not without mishaps, however, as quite a few had come to grief in the Bay of Biscay. Sergeants Antonopoulos and Hall, along with an Irishman, Sergeant Paddy Conway, had made a second attempt a week earlier, but had come down in the bay. They were still missing. Captain Denham was keeping things moving in England, leaving Major Cooper free to organise the ferrying from Sally across North Africa to the forward airstrip. There now appeared to be a shortage of tugs, as quite a few crews were now at Port Reith with the horses, waiting for Halifaxes to tow them out to Sally. Percy, Harry and I had only been back from leave three or four days when Captain Denham informed us that we were now a priority crew, having already done the trip and that we would take off for Port Reith that evening, carrying some spare parts that were urgently needed in North Africa. As we took off for the comparatively short trip to Port Reith, we carried, apart from ourselves and the spare parts, ten passengers and a cardboard box containing a dozen eggs. The ten passengers consisted of three glider crews who were going to wait at Port Reith and one tiny black kitten, complete with a basket and a blue ribbon tied in a bow round its neck. I was flying the horser. By the time we neared Port Reith, I was getting a bit fed up with a few of the passengers who were standing in a bunch round the control cabin doorway and were literally breathing down my neck. 
Being glider pilots themselves, they were critically watching every move I made and from time to time passed good-natured, sarcastic comments among themselves. Arriving at Port Reith, I could see that the runway in use would mean us coming into land from the seaward side and over the cliffs. For the benefit of my colleagues, I decided to execute a landing which, although spectacular looking, was perfectly safe under normal conditions. I cast off over the sea at about 600 feet on the crosswind leg with the runway on my left and immediately put the horser into a steep climbing turn to port. Coming out at the top of the turn facing the runway, I levelled out, slammed on full flap and went straight into a vertical dive. All this had been carried out in more or less one single manoeuvre and there were grunts of approval from the glider pilots standing in the doorway. So far, so good. We appeared to be losing height rapidly in the dive. Far too rapidly. I glanced at the airspeed indicator, saw that we were doing about 130 miles per hour and realised to my display that the flaps hadn't worked. I pulled the flap lever up and down desperately but to no avail. The runway was by no means a long one and I could see that unless I could get the speed down to anything like landing speed, we would overshoot. To make matters worse, there was virtually no wind and one of the blokes was laughing his head off as he pointed this out. We were nearly halfway up the runway and still doing around 100 miles per hour when I yanked the control column back and tried a touchdown. We bounced and became airborne again. I tried once more, again we bounced and again we were airborne. So it went on in a series of bucking bronco leaps right across the airfield until with a rending, tearing crash, we finally came to rest with the nose of the horser in an air raid trench and the tail sticking in the air. The glider pilot passengers were all in a heap in the control cabin doorway and there were many unprintable remarks as they picked themselves up and rubbed their bruises. The kitten was still fast asleep and the eggs were intact. An RAF corporal stuck his head in the fuselage doorway, surveyed the wreckage and said, Blimey Sarge, you made a right bleeding mess of that one. As we walked away from the wrecked horser, we were told that the spare parts would be transferred to another glider and that we could still take off for Africa the following morning as planned. So at our 800 hours the next day, we duly took off with Percy at the controls and me in the co-pilot's seat. This time, the takeoff was inland towards some hills. I was just about to pull the undercarriage release lever when there was a hell of a lot of shouting on the intercom from the tug. Both the rear gunner and the wireless operator were yelling at the tops of their voices, and the words I could pick out most were release and pull off. I glanced, and the Halifax, with its overload fuel tanks, looked as though it would be unable to clear the hilltops, which were looming nearer every second and were now almost on top of us. In the face of this I cast off immediately and we were adrift with less than a couple of hundred feet of height to spare for Percy to find a landing place. The hillside seemed to be covered with tiny fields each bounded by stone fences. Unfortunately we hit one of those stone fences with a terrific crash and finished up with the horses standing on its nose. Percy and Harry were okay but my safety harness broke and I shot forward my head going through the perspex roof of the control cabin. The horser itself was a complete write-off. Later it transpired that the two aircrew had been shouting at me to release the undercarriage. Had they kept quiet and minded their own business, it would have been jettisoned anyway, and we would no doubt have carried on to South Africa. As it was, Harry and Percy went back to Holmesley South, and I was kept in the station hospital for a few days under observation for possible head injuries. Just to rub it in, on coming out of hospital, I decided to get back to Holmesley as quickly as possible, and a young sergeant pilot offered to give me a lift in his Whitley bomber as far as Hearn, where he had to land for some reason or other. We took off just before dark, and an hour later everything seemed to be going wrong. First the wireless packed up, then all sorts of things happened, with the result that, with the aircrew hopelessly lost, we finally landed at a satellite fighter station in the early hours of the following morning. When I finally arrived at Holmesley, thoroughly fed up, Captain Denham sent me off on a few days' leave. 
Back at Holmesley, it was obvious that we were dead unlucky as a crew, so we reluctantly decided to part company and crew up with someone else. Harry Flynn's luck was still out, and on his trip to Africa, his tug glider combination was attacked and shot down over the Bay of Biscay by a pack of nine JU-88s. Fortunately for Harry and his crewmates, they were picked up by a destroyer a few hours later. For my next trip to Sully, I crewed up with Sergeants Coombs and Hatton. Charlie Coombs, an ex-member of the military police, was a magnificent specimen. Over six feet tall, with wavy auburn hair and a splendid moustache, he looked every inch a soldier. And with his impressive physique, he even managed to look smart in battle dress. Dougie Hatton was a likeable character who hailed from Lancashire. Ruddy complexion, stockily built of medium height, he had slightly protruding teeth and an infectious grin. We spent an idyllic week at Port Reith, awaiting a tug to tow us to Sally. The weather was glorious, and we whiled away the days sunbathing and swimming on lovely Cornish beaches, along with a few other glider pilots and some comely-looking wafts. The evenings were spent in the local pub, where I even managed to get in a spot of trumpet playing. A pleasant interlude indeed. One evening, a couple of Halifaxes flew in, and we were duly allocated one of them and briefed to take off the following morning. I was none too happy about the aircrew of the tug we were assigned to. There was something about them which just didn't inspire any confidence. The skipper was a young, jittery flying officer I hadn't seen before, and he seemed to be constantly arguing and bickering with his crew. Still, I thought that perhaps I had come to expect too much, having been towed so often by Buster Briggs. We took off towards the sea at Port Reith and climbed steadily to about 2,000 feet into a brilliant blue sky. How different the weather was compared to my first trip. Not a cloud as far as the eye could see, and the Atlantic below us looked like a mill pond. As far as Dougie and Charlie were concerned, this was their first trip, and it looked as though they were in for a nice, pleasant one. The horser was handling a treat, and we had one hourly spells each at the controls. We had been flying for something like four hours at 2,000 feet, and I was at the controls when, without warning, the Halifax went into a dive. The dive got steeper, and I snapped into the intercom, What the bloody hell's going on? There was no reply, and I could hear the tug crew shouting at each other. I decided to hang on until the last possible moment before releasing, as with the sea as calm as it was, I didn't anticipate any trouble if I had to ditch. The speed built up to a terrific rate, but at the last second, when it seemed certain that the Halifax must crash into the sea, it levelled out and both tug and glider were skimming across the top of the water. The names I called the tug pilot over the intercom during the next few minutes were unprintable. It appeared that he had set the controls of the Halifax on George, the automatic pilot, and had left his seat to go and talk to one of the crew, George, of course, had chosen that inopportune moment to pack up and become unserviceable. We shakily climbed back to a couple of thousand feet and continued on our way. A few miles farther on, we spotted a lone aircraft flying towards us. It turned out to be a German Fockerwolf Condor. Apparently it was not looking for trouble, however, because after turning and flying parallel with us for a few miles, just out of range of the tug's machine guns, it waggled its wings, turned again and flew on its way. The rest of the trip was without incident, and we landed at Sally just nine hours, 55 minutes after takeoff. The first thing I did on landing was to seek out the tug skipper to tell him just what I thought of him, but he was so nervous and apologetic that I let it slide. However, I wasn't exactly looking forward to the next day, when we had to fly behind him for another ten hours over the Atlas Mountains right across North Africa. Next morning the heat was terrific, and as I stood watching the Halifax being refuelled with its 2,400 gallons of high-octane fuel, I didn't envy the tug pilot his job of coaxing it up over the Atlas Mountains with a horser on the end of a tow rope. The skipper told us that he proposed to do a sweeping circuit to the left on takeoff, which would take us over the coastline 
climbing steadily all the time so that by the time we completed the circuit and arrived back over the aerodrome, we would have about 2,000 feet in hand before setting a course for the Atlas Mountains. We took off with Charlie at the controls and had climbed to about 500 feet when thick black smoke started pouring out of the tug's starboard inner engine. It didn't need much imagination to see that something was seriously wrong. I called the tug skipper to ask if he would like us to cast off and as I did so, the starboard outer engine started to smoke. The tug skipper managed to make himself heard above the frightened voices of the rest of the crew and told me to cast off as soon as I liked, to give him a chance to maintain what height he had to complete the circuit back to the runway. Charlie nodded and I released just as we crossed the flat coastline. Without hesitation, he went into a steep, climbing turn over the sea until the horse's nose was headed back towards the land and then went into a steep dive. I thought at first he intended landing on the beach, but Charlie had other ideas. As soon as he had built up a good speed, he levelled out, crossed the coast, and executed a perfect landing in a flat field adjacent to the long coastal road, which ran alongside Sally Airstrip less than four miles distant. From release to the actual landing had taken less than a couple of minutes, and we quickly jumped out to watch the Halifax, which was going its slow, heavy, ponderous way round the circuit, with smoke still coming furiously from two of its engines, and slowly but surely losing height. We stood silently watching it, each of us hoping desperately that it would make the runway, but it was not to be. From where we were standing, the Halifax appeared to touch down in the sandy scrub just short of the runway and bounce high in the air, something falling off it as it did so. At the height of the bounce, the Halifax blew up with a tremendous explosion, which we could feel from where we were standing nearly four miles away. In less than 15 minutes, during which time we were surrounded by masses of excited Arabs and their offspring, who seemed to appear from nowhere, a convoy of American jeeps, trailers and tractors arrived to convey us and the undamaged horser back to Sally Airstrip, where the Halifax was still burning. The rear turret had fallen off when the Halifax bounced, and the rear gunner escaped with a few scratches. Of the rest of the crew, there was no trace. They just didn't stand a chance. We were now stranded at Sally, without a tug so settle down to live in our horser, be entertained by the ever-hospitable Americans and wait patiently for a spare Halifax to arrive to tow us to our destination. I soon found a couple of Yank musicians, a guitarist and accordionist, and will always remember these few pleasant evenings playing in the middle of a circle of squatting Americans on that sandy, scrubby airstrip, eager for every note of music they could get. Harry James's version of You Made Me Love You was very popular at the time, and requests for it were numerous. However, I was only too pleased when a lone Halifax arrived about a week after the accident to tow us for the rest of the trip. The pilot, Flight Sergeant Dougie Dougal, his co-pilot, Sergeant Arthur Berry, and the rest of the crew had been great friends of mine since long before the start of Turkey Buzzard, and I was delighted to know that they were to tow us to our destination. Dougie I knew to be an absolutely first-rate pilot and had been towed by him on many occasions. We wasted no time and took off for the advanced airstrip near Seuss the following morning. Just as on the previous trip I'd had a feeling that something would go wrong, I had a feeling on this trip that everything would be okay. Sure enough, we landed at Seuss about 10 hours after takeoff, following a magnificent flight over the Atlas Mountains entirely without incident. Having safely delivered the horser, we spent two or three pleasant days on the advanced airstrip at Seuss, renewing old friendships, and then one morning climbed aboard Dougie's Halifax, homeward bound via Gibraltar. We touched down at Gibraltar in the afternoon, where Dougie intended to refuel and take off for England that night. As it turned out, there was a very heavy mist, and all aircraft were grounded. 
The weather conditions remained the same the following night and looked like being the same on the third night when the inevitable mist closed down early in the evening. In view of this, we decided, after having wangled a fiver each advance of cash from a considerate quartermaster, to look in at the station dance being held that evening. Dougie had been having tummy trouble all day, but elected to come along. On arrival at the recreation hall where the dance was in full swing, we went straight to the bar and proceeded to down a few pints as there seemed little likelihood of us flying that night. Around 10 o'clock, Arthur Berry, who by then had quite a load on, wandered over to the band and had a few words with the leader, who in turn asked me to sit in with his group for a swing session. I was right in the mood by this time and didn't need to be asked twice. We went into an impromptu swing session, which was greatly appreciated by the dancers as they yelled for more after each number. I was in the middle of a chorus and the time was around 11.30 when I noticed an airman rounding up Dougie and the rest of the boys. Dougie signed to me and I thanked the band leader and went over to join him. The mist had cleared and we were to take off for England at midnight. A few last-minute instructions and we climbed aboard the Halifax, which had been loaded up with sacks of mail destined for England. We parked ourselves where we could and nervously awaited takeoff. I don't think any of us were feeling very happy at that moment. The runway being used for takeoff literally ended in the sea and none of us relished the prospect of ending up in the drink at this stage. We needn't have worried. Poor Dougie may not have been feeling too well with the effects of his tummy upset, but his capabilities as a Halifax pilot were by no means diminished. We cleared the end of the flare path with about 50 yards to spare and headed out to sea, climbing steadily. After about 10 minutes, Arthur Berry took over to enable Dougie to have a few hours rest in the fuselage. Charlie Coombs and Dougie Hatton were also fast asleep and I was just about to settle down myself when the flight engineer shook me on the shoulder and shouted in my ear, Hey, Lofty! Arthur wants to know if you'd like to have a bash on the controls. Ready to try anything once, I went up front to the pilot's cabin and got into the pilot's seat. I felt just great sitting there in control of the giant four-engined Halifax, and it just didn't seem possible that less than an hour previously I'd been playing my trumpet in a swing session in Gibraltar. We were flying at about 9,000 feet, and the only light in the cabin came from the luminous dials on the control panel. It was just like sitting in a link trainer back in the old days of flying training. Every now and again the navigator's voice would come over the intercom, with a slight adjustment of course. After an hour or so I glanced back in the fuselage and noticed that Arthur Berry, too, was fast asleep next to Dougie. I must confess I had one or two uneasy moments when I allowed myself to think what would happen if we were attacked by a prowling JU-88 9,000 feet over the Bay of Biscay, with myself at the controls. However, all went well. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus.